Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, here with the purpling of Virginia. What is this bellwether state telling us, both in the wake of election 2020 and in the thick of its trademark odd year election season? Our guests include two tireless political correspondents, a young GOP strategist, and Virginia's first Muslim state senator. Stick around. Full Disclosure is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend this show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from various parts around the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, Jeff Shapiro returns to the show. He's a politics columnist, venerable veteran politics columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch in the state capitol. How are you, sir? I am well, Robin. Thanks for having me. And up in the Nova is Michael Pope with Virginia Public Radio. Uh, first time and hopefully not the last. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a fan, longtime listener, first time guest. First time guest. Well, let me throw out a jump ball. Uh, what does Virginia tell us? I go back at this, Jeff. You know, we talked about this quite a bit. Something turned in 2008 where it was no longer a red state. And that has somehow stuck. Even with the Trump election in 2016, Hillary Clinton managed to eke it out. We've seen various things happening. There seems to be a relitigation of Trump versus Clinton nominally in their in their proxies. What with Yunkin going up against McAuliffe for governor? What do you think? Well, you know, the state has continued to change. Uh, you know, there are people who continue to move into the state. Uh, the majority of Virginians uh, are are non-natives. Actually, the the uh, the number of people moving into Virginia has um, has declined significantly. What's keeping Virginia's population growing is the birth rate, but the diversity within that population is accelerating, and the suburbanization of Virginia is continuing. That is feeding this blue tendency, which was magnified and truly accelerated by Trump. So what we're going to see in this election is whether that demographic change is sufficient to keep Democrats uh, aloft. Mike, what do you think? You know, one thing that people always bring up with these Virginia gubernatorial elections is they always follow the presidential election. And most of the time, it's a reaction in the opposite direction. So there's Mm. been a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, every year when there's a Virginia gubernatorial election, it's the opposite of what the presidential politics was, with one notable exception, which was, of course, Terry McAuliffe himself in 2013 was elected after the Obama re-election. And I think there probably is something to that, to Virginia sort of serving as some sort of reaction to what happens with the president on the presidential stage. 
And I think this election really will end up being a test about the durability of Trumpism, right? So like, is Trump gone and out of the picture and we are, are moved on to, you know, the Glenn Youngkin era of it's a new day and the sun is rising sure. and, and Trump is out of the picture? Or is Trump still with us and still haunting Virginia politics? And I think we don't really know the answer to that quite yet. Well, let me ask you straight up, is there any way for a Republican contender for statewide office in a swing state like this to run for office without kissing Mr. Trump's ring to begin with. I mean, take the counterfactual. If a person came out and didn't immediately praise him or say something like that, Trump would primary him with someone else or would castigate him otherwise. Well, just consider how Youngkin uh, has handled Trump. He is well aware of the perils of seeming too close to the former president, but he is also appreciative of the the necessity of obeisance requires within, you know, the, the current Republican uh, Party. So this is a uh, this is a tough ne- needle to thread for Youngkin. I'm not saying that uh, you know this is a slam dunk for Democrats at all. Uh, you know, if we've seen anything, it's in Virginia. We have seen re- reminder after reminder that you know turnout shapes all. So. In 2008, when Barack Obama carried Virginia, ending that long Democratic presidential drought here before Obama won, the last time a Democrat had won the presidency in Virginia was in 1964. Wow. In 2009, Bob McDonald led a Republican sweep in a landslide, largely because the turnout, which had spiked you know, well past 70% in a presidential year, fell to the low 40s. And while there were clearly a lot of Democratic voters in in Virginia, and there are perhaps more Democratic voters than there are Republican voters. One thing Republican voters are that Democrats aren't is disciplined. Michael, will you explain why it's even set up like this? Why the election for governor, for example, and uh, other things that happen in Virginia are so peculiar in the way they're staggered? Well, if it wasn't peculiar, would it even be Virginia? You know, I love listening to Jeff Shapiro talk because I always have to run and get my dictionary. Did he just use the word obeisance? Obeisance. I missed that on the SAT verbal. I'm going to have to look that up. I don't know. I did miss that on the SAT verbal, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. So you ask a really salient question, which is why is it set up this way? And I don't know the answer to that. And I and it's possible it might not have been done on purpose. I'll throw that to Jeff. Do do you happen to know why we've got these odd year elections? Uh, The Virginia gubernatorial election was locked in in the year after a presidential election when Virginia in 1851 went to direct election of its governor. Before that, uh, the governor was a, uh, a creature of the legislature. <laughs> and so, so since, yeah, I, a, since 1851, we've had this um, off-year scheme. And you know, as the state has grown, uh, as the state has changed, as our politics have become more competitive, the off-year election in Virginia and New Jersey, the only other state uh, choosing a governor, holding a statewide election in the year immediately following a presidential election, these campaigns become a mini referenda on what's going on in in Washington and are often interpreted as sort of the leading indicators for the midterms ahead in, in 22. So so it's worth actually giving some thought to the politics of the early 1850s. This was a time when there, were, there was no Republican Party to speak of. There was a Whig Party 
uh, which was sort of anti Andrew Jackson, and then the Democratic Party, which was a creature of Andrew Jackson. Uh, and I would imagine that this was an effort to intentionally distance Virginia from the presidential politics of that antebellum era. Jeff, would you say that's an accurate read of that? Uh, the, the historians are divided on this uh, point, Michael. Um, you know, when the uh, the Constitutional Convention was held and uh, the 1851 uh, uh, Constitution was approved, the, uh, the language, the the, the accompanying statute uh, basically, uh, you know, said the election must be held in 1851, and it was it it seemed more administrative uh, than anything else. But there are you know ample indications over the years, even through the the, the machine segregationist era, of of now national politics of outside events shaping gubernatorial campaigns. Certainly during the uh, the fifties when Republicans were threatening during the um, extended fights over public school desegregation, Dwight Eisenhower's decision to send the Airborne into Little Rock to oversee the uh, desegregation of Central High School clearly finished off the Republicans uh, in the uh, following year's gubernatorial election. Wow. Well, you are in Alexandria, Virginia, Mr. Pope. Am I right? That's where I am, right? Tell me about the Republic of Nova, as they call it, because I, I have another meaning of life question. Psychographically, what is Nova anymore? Is, for example, Ashland an exurb of Northern Virginia? I know people here in the metropolitan Richmond area, Henrico, Ashland, certainly Fredericksburg, who live in commute to D.C. You see this kind of they talk about suburban sprawl, but there's definitely a beltway sprawl. You know, I've always found it odd that, you know, where I live in Alexandria is considered Northern Virginia. But then if you look at, like, let's say Winchester, Winchester is probably due, I mean, not due north of where I live, but like, if you look at a map, it's, I would imagine, northwest of where I live. But people don't consider Winchester Northern Virginia. Right. Isn't that odd? Like, there's that part of, if you think about the map, there's that part of Virginia that's probably the northernmost part of Virginia, not Northern Virginia. So uh, it's a cultural thing, of course, about Washington, D.C. and the areas around Washington, D.C. Um, I always have to say that I bristle at the notion that it's suburban D.C. because um, your listeners may know the location of Washington, D.C. was selected specifically because of its proximity to Alexandria. So in many ways, Washington, D.C. is a suburb of Alexandria. Okay, then go ahead. What? How far south, though? How far south do you think this place extends? I mean, I you know, everybody bandies about high-speed rail. So I think there's a there is a demarcation there at Fredericksburg. Anyone who has driven on the interstate knows you're in a different world once you hit Fredericksburg. So um I would I would imagine that's probably the sort of mental line. Yeah, I think that um uh when I landed in Richmond in 1979, Northern Virginia largely ended, or so the wisdom at the time uh, was, at the Occoquan, the, the boundary between Prince William and Fairfax County. Uh, clearly that's that's changed. And now uh, as one approaches Fredericksburg crossing the Rappahannock River, there is a third bridge under construction. And that has only to do with the that ever-expanding conurbation that is Washington, D.C., and, you know, it wasn't too long ago that the, the planners, the transportation planners up in um, Washington 
had this idea for, you know, outer and outer beltways, feeder roads of which would reach into the northernmost edges of the Richmond suburb. Wow. Now, uh, let's also not forget that pulling our conversation back to the election, we've got a Democratic ticket with three Northern Virginia people on mm-hmm. it. And the Republicans are actually quite eager to campaign against that. They've got a ticket that's got some regional diversity. All of the candidates actually have some kind of connection to the Hampton Roads area. Winsome Sears, of course, represented parts of the Hampton Roads area when she was in the House of Delegates. She actually now lives uh, the northern part of Virginia. Um, in Winchester, Michael. I was about to say. Oh. So actually, I tripped myself up there. She lives in Winchester now. Is that northern Virginia? I don't know. The northern part of Virginia. But uh, anyway, so but she does have this connection because she represented the Hampton Roads area. Jason Miares, of course, is a delegate who represents Virginia Beach. Uh, even Yunkin, uh, that commercial that you see him appearing in about washing dishes, I believe it was the Hampton Roads area he was washing those dishes in. Yeah, so, he, um, uh, born, in born in Richmond, uh, in Chesterfield, lived there for a while. Uh, you know, we hear often about his father uh, losing his job. Uh, his mother's a nurse, also a college administrator. They ended up in Virginia Beach, where he, um, you know, endured his adolescence. And, um, you know, now is one of the captains of industry, uh, retired, lives up in Northern Virginia. So he is a candidate who can go into Richmond, Virginia Beach, Northern Virginia, and open his remarks saying, it's good to be home. (laughs) Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Jeff Shapiro, veteran political columnist with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. We're also joined by Michael Pope with Virginia Public Radio. He joins us up from the Republic of Nova in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, Tell me about money. In this race, because there's certainly a lot of, uh, if you would call it, financial self-determination among these two millionaires. Terry McAuliffe has no secret that he's personally bankrolled, but Glenn Youngkin and the uh, record amounts that we're going to be spent on on TV ads, you know, over the next few months. I would actually take issue with what you just said. So I, I don't think McAuliffe is personally bankrolling his campaign. It's interesting that McAuliffe and Yunkin are both super wealthy white guys who have the ability to throw around a lot of money. But McAuliffe is not really investing his own money into his campaign. He's investing other people's money into his campaign and a lot of it. That's the best kind of money. Yunkin, on the other hand, is really seriously throwing a lot of his own money at the campaign and and you know sort of has a bottomless pit of money to throw at the campaign i i think we're going to see tens of millions of dollars of his own money thrown at the at the campaign and i also have to say i don't really think that's an attack that resonates with voters i don't think they particularly care about care. that that i think they're going to see a lot of the television commercials and and i think the democrats might try to use that as an attack i'm not sure that it's going to stick well, Youngkin um, is, well, let's put it this way. McAuliffe's a piker compared with, with Youngkin. You know, McAuliffe's worth, you know, $27 million, $30 million, something like that. Youngkin, depending on uh, where Carlisle stock is closing, uh, <laughs> is at about net worth of about $330 million. And he hasn't, um, you know, hesitated uh, to throw... Uh, his money at uh, this race so far, though uh, they are technically carried as loans right now. Uh, the other thing is, because there are only two races, two gubernatorial races in Virginia, well, obviously, Yunkin is going to be um, generous 
uh, subsidizing his campaign, there's going to be a lot of national money available to these candidates. Uh, and with the New Jersey gubernatorial race really considered a waste of time for the Republicans, Virginia is really the show as a battleground state. So money will, uh, will be abundant. And I guess for someone like Terry McAuliffe, who spent $25 million on his first, excuse me, his second campaign, but his first winning campaign, uh, this is a, an interesting uh, proposition. He may actually be running in a campaign in which his opponent spends more money. Is it, uh, Michael, is it antipodal, uh, for example? I mean, is it a net gain for somebody like a Youngkin to be visited by a Donald Trump, let's say in Powhatan or Winchester? I mean, the optics of that, would it negate, would it energize Democratic voters on on balance, say in Charlottesville or Northern Virginia, to say he is a uh, Confederate of Trump? Or is it kind of a more of a net positive and then it charges the base? Well, McAuliffe certainly thinks it's a net positive for his campaign if Trump comes to Virginia. I think if you'll recall, after McAuliffe secured the nomination, one of the first things he did was appear on MSNBC and basically dare Trump to come to Virginia. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think Democrats have calculated that they want the election to be about Donald Trump and they will do anything they possibly can to make it about Donald Trump. And McAuliffe is not going to let that Trump endorsement ever slip out of the minds of the voters. But it's not nearly as polarizing, Jeff, for example, for Joe Biden to visit and, you know, to, to work to work the rounds with Terry McAuliffe. Oh, not at all. Uh, remember, Biden carried the state by 10 percentage points. Uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, squeaked by, you know, by just under five percentage points. But remember, you know, Virginia is uh, a place in which it's politics, which, you know, for so long were sort of friends and neighbors oriented, uh, not wildly partisan, more philosophical. Uh, it's really changed. It's, it's very national in its tone. Uh, it's tribal. Uh, you know, we have legislative elections that are run in this state on federal energy policy specific to coal. So these, these reminders, one by McAuliffe of Yunkin's Trump problem, and two, Yunkin's uh, sometimes clumsy handling of that, clearly uh, these are reminders that national politics will shape the preferences of voters. You know, the Democrats want to see a couple of things uh, heading into the fall. They want to see Biden with a, a comfortable positive, a, a relatively high approval rating uh, in Virginia, and they want to see an economy uh, that's uh, relatively strong. And they also want to see their kids back in school because they know, as do Republicans who would hope that if the reverse were the case, all of this is going to factor in the decisions of voters. Gentlemen, if you will, close us out with a talk uh, discussion of it's almost forgotten. He was not mentioned once, but Ralph Northam, uh, the, the the lame duck, the current governor who survived the blackface scandal, uh, something that would have felled any other predecessor. There was tremendous pressure from inside the party. I don't even recall if Biden or some of the other national figures were also encouraging him to step down. But not only did he stick around, he implemented policies. He got to see uh, the state capitol turn blue. Does he have any future past that one term as Virginia governor? Uh, is there anything else you can tell me about him kind of as a as a coda or as a footnote, Michael? 
I would say I would yield to Jeff Shapiro, who, of course, will say the, the, the best thing. But I, you know, I find it interesting that Northam in this campaign cycle has worked so hard at being kingmaker and making endorsements. I mean, famously, he endorsed Jay Jones in that AG race. Um, and now the Republicans get to knock Herring for not even being the choice of the governor. Northam also made some local endorsements here in Alexandria, where I live. I think he endorsed the mayor and who was being challenged. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, Northam as kingmaker was sort of an interesting development that I didn't quite anticipate. But that's that's the role that he tried to play in this primary that's just now ended. In terms of a future, I have to say I'm having a hard time envisioning any kind of political future for Northam. But stranger things have happened. So, I don't know. What do you think, Jeff Shapiro? Well, I don't know that uh, Ralph Northam has any interest uh, other than returning to uh, Norfolk and uh, practicing medicine. Um, it, since it appears that Jay Jones is uh, going to be in the legislature and not in the attorney general's office come January, uh, his new next door neighbor will be uh, Ralph uh, Northam and, and wife Pam, who's observing her birthday uh, later this week. I, I, I think there are a couple of things about Ralph Northam that uh, should be uh, underscored. Uh, clearly, he has been a, a governor of consequence even before blackface. But after blackface, things certainly accelerated, certainly in the area of racial reckoning. And what I, I think history will ask is Ralph Northam a politician who shaped events or is he a politician who was shaped by events? And um, also, uh, and perhaps the primary um, bears th th this out. We saw the, the governor making endorsements. Some of them had more to do with uh, personal differences, including the one with uh, Mark Herring. But ultimately, the outcome, and this includes endorsing Terry McAuliffe, uh, is, I think, a kind of an affirmation of really Ralph Northam's centrist, center left politics. That's really where. Virginia Democrats, when they vote at large, are that more aggressive, more liberal in the argo of the times, more progressive impulse uh, is, is really evident in the local races. And even up in Alexandria, uh, progressivism can go a little too far. Ask Michael about Mark Levine, a casualty of this uh, of this primary season. Michael, you will not be seeing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Alexandria. I couldn't resist, right? You know what? I So there is a school of thought that said that the primary was sort of a triumph of the moderates over the progressives. And I think the import of what Jeff Shapiro was just saying is that Levine might have lost because he was too progressive. I'm not sure that I buy that. And here's why. Because during the campaign... Uh, he was challenged by the current vice mayor of Alexandria, whose name is Elizabeth Bennett Parker. And I interviewed both Levine and Bennett Parker about their issues and the things that they wanted to see, because I was really trying to see if I could get some kind of distinction about Levine is more liberal on this, or maybe Bennett Parker was more liberal on this. They were just rock solid, identical. There was no issue where she was more or less progressive than him. Even on things like, you know, Levine, like Mark Levine was for things like gun registration, an issue so out there, the Democrats haven't even 
introduce that because it certainly wouldn't pass. And they don't, they just don't want to have the debate. So I asked Elizabeth Bennett Parker, oh yeah, I'm for that too. Um, it, there was zero policy <clears throat> distinction between them. The reason that Levine lost is because he was on the ballot twice, which voters hate. Thank you so much, Jeff Shapiro and Michael Pope. Jeff Shapiro is veteran political columnist with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Definitely come on again. Michael Pope with Virginia Public Radio. I very much enjoyed this for what it's worth. If you can subordinate yourselves and your reputations to come back on full disclosure, you're always welcome and we'll figure out the tech specifics. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. It's a blast. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. This episode podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you're just joining us, we're asking the existential question, what does Virginia tell us on this uh, odd year election, this gubernatorial election year? Uh, joining me is Taylor Keeney, Director of Strategic Communications and Advocacy at Hunt and Andrews Kurth. She was press secretary for Cindy McCain during John McCain's 2008 uh, presidential campaign. She was press secretary for Governor Bob McDonnell here in Virginia and has, has advised a number of GOP campaigns in the Commonwealth. How are you? Good. I'm excited to be on with you, Robin. Finally, let me let me throw the jump ball at you because you were on McCain 2008. Uh, what what does this state tell us? Because it was always my impression if I look at Virginia, at least its presidential electoral history, it was solidly red until about 2008 when it somehow shifted to Obama. I mean, going back to 76, it, it didn't go for Carter. For 1980, it went for Reagan. 84, 88, 92, 96, 2000, even 2004 for Bush against Kerry, but then something switched in 08. Yeah, well, 2008 was the first time that Virginia went blue in the presidential mm. race. Now, for the governor's race, however, we've always flip-flopped based on who's in the White House, um, except for 2013 when Terry McAuliffe was elected governor. So, this year's gubernatorial election is absolutely going to be interesting, given that you have Terry McAuliffe on the Democratic ticket again, but also it, it's really proof as to whether Virginia is a bellwether or not. Well, so what is it specifically that moved the needle? Was it the growth of Northern Virginia? I mean, it, it feels like a different state when you drive past Fredericksburg and you're up there, you know, the, the war monument and everything. It, it looks like you're truly crossing into a different zone. Yeah, absolutely. The growth in Northern Virginia um, shifted the voting trends in the state for sure. Um, Northern Virginia in the last 13 years since I've lived here has changed dramatically, but um, leading up to the 2008 election, but even before that, as population growth shifted in Northern Virginia, but also as rural parts of the state got less and less populated, um, we saw a shift in the state. That's to say, not to say, though, that a Republican can't win in Virginia. We saw Bob McDonnell win by a large margin in 2009. So absolutely, the shift in Northern Virginia has contributed to Virginia becoming a bluer state, but it doesn't mean that all hope is lost for Republicans in the state. What is it about the governor voting history? Can you explain for our broader listenership the peculiarities of the off your kind of gubernatorial vote. It is term limited. You've seen toggling between the U.S. Senate and the governor's mansion. Yeah. So Virginia um, has one term governors. So you can, well, sorry, Virginia right. has one term governors in that you can only serve one term and then you would have to take a cycle off to run for reelection again. Um, and so 
We constantly have elections. We have every four years, it's going to be different people running statewide for governor. And then you also have off-year off elections in Virginia mm. and that our state legislature is up every two years um, for the House and every four years for the Senate. And so we always have every single year elections in Virginia. And um, we also, I think, pride ourselves in having an off-off-year gubernatorial election in that we are one of two states holding statewide elections this year. It's Virginia and New Jersey. And just the nature of Virginia in that, similar to how we opened this conversation, had historically um, voted Republican for president. We like to elect a governor that is the opposite party of the party in the White House. And that has been the trend for many years um, up until 2013 when that trend changed. And so in 2013, we elected Terry McAuliffe as governor and kind of shifted that historical benchmark that we'd had. Um, and so it's, and then arguments can be made as to why that happened, but this is the first true test as to whether we're going to go back to electing a governor that's of the opposite party in the White House or a governor that's of the same party. And I think a lot of that has to do with our proximity to Washington, D.C., in that um, similar to also what we were talking about in Northern Virginia and so much of our population growth being up there, we have a very educated electorate and we have people paying very close attention to federal politics because of our proximity to D.C. Um, and so that does often influence the issues of the day in state elections and influence how voters choose who they want in office um, in the governor's mansion. Let me ask you, Taylor, is the idea of, uh, you know, Terry McAuliffe, who was governor previously, was very close to the Clintons when they were in the White House. I think, did he run the DNC back he, in the day? I believe he was chair of the DNC. Do you see that McAuliffe versus Glenn Youngkin as a kind of a proxy, again, Clinton versus Trump? Can you run uh, for statewide office in this state and not be in thrall to former President Trump? You know, I think both Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin mm. are running their own campaigns. Um, they, you know, they both have a business background, very different business backgrounds, but a business background. And they both, Terry McAuliffe, the first time he ran, ran as a political outsider. And now Glenn Youngkin, now that he's running, is running as a political outsider. And so um, the irony being that this time you have the outsider versus the insider because McAuliffe has served in office. But similar backgrounds, um, Glenn Youngkin was a very successful business person. And Terry McAuliffe is running both on his record eight years ago, but also the record of the last four years, and then has new policies that he's going to be running on this cycle. And so it's going to come down to what voters are really looking for in their next governor. And I think we'll be taking a hard look at what's going on um, up in Washington, D.C., but also what's been going on in the state over the last four years and deciding, do they like the direction the state's been going or do they want to shake it up and want bring in somebody new? Taylor, I'm reading from a, a story in Politico on May 11th. Uh, the headline is, Youngkin seeks to reverse Virginia's GOP Trump-era carnage. Let me quote from the top. Less than 12 hours after Glenn Youngkin locked up the GOP nomination for Virginia's governor, former President Donald Trump barreled into 2021's most competitive statewide election. Quote, Glenn is pro-business, pro-Second Amendment, pro-veterans, pro-America. He knows how to make Virginia's economy rip-roaring, and he has my complete and total endorsement, exclamation mark, Trump wrote in a statement Tuesday that was circulated by his political action committee. I, I don't know if it's a you know statistical optimality or anything. How much does it turn off potential swing voters or people who might otherwise be, let's say, I don't know, you know, socially liberal but fiscally conservative that 
Youngkin is now in the camp, for better or for worse, with someone who was such a polarizing president who lost kind of handily by seven or eight million votes. Well, you know, I think Glenn Youngkin's been running his own campaign this whole time. Um, and I think he'll continue to run as a conservative Republican who's bringing that outsider perspective to the governor's race and would bring it to the governor's office. So I think at the end of the day, it's going to be Glenn Youngkin versus Terry McAuliffe. And out, whatever outside influences do and weigh in, I think some of it's going to be breaking through the noise and the clutter and trying to figure out what these guys stand for and what type of governor they would be this time around um, and for Yunkin, what type of governor he would be. But I think both bring um, really strong backgrounds. And I think for Glenn Youngkin, it's going to be getting out there and people meeting get meeting him, getting to know him. And he's been working hard to do that so far. And he's been all over the place. He's holding rallies all over. He's holding a rally, I think, in Chesterfield on Saturday um, and getting large turnout for all of these events. So he's really doing, I think, a really solid job of defining himself and who he will be as a governor. And um, ultimately, I think that's what voters are going to be looking at is who is this guy and do we want this outsider in the governor's office and do we want something new and do we want something fresh? And I think what we've experienced over the last year, year and a half, both during COVID and what's been going on in the governor's office for the last four years is voters are going to be taking a hard look at the direction that Virginia has been going and decide if they're ready for something new. So here's the deal. If you want a, a national GOP standard bearer stumping for you in this critical swing state of Virginia, it's not like you're inviting a George W. George W. Bush at this point or a Mitch McConnell. Is it for better or for worse Donald Trump that you bring in and, and take him to places like Powhatan and Chesterfield and Roanoke and maybe, you know, in, into border country down south? I, you know, I honestly don't know what Glenn Youngkin's strategy is in that regard. He brought Ted Cruz in right before the primary, and that seemed to get a lot of people really excited about his candidacy. So I can't speak to what Glenn Youngkin's strategy is, um, but I can tell you that he's out there working hard for every vote and putting in a huge field staff to find the voters, turn voters out and get people out on election day and really have a positive future facing campaign and strategy. And so um, in terms of who comes in and stumps for him, I have absolutely no idea what the plan is. But I will say at this point, it looks like he's been doing a really good job just running a positive campaign with a really positive message that's attracting new people to it. You know, I, I think I, I remember watching MSNBC and some of the other networks on presidential election night, uh, focusing a lot for whatever reason on Chesterfield County yeah. and South Richmond as a kind of an indicator species for, I mean, if you were to take a cross section of everything in Virginia, right, the Northern Virginia, the the commute, especially after pandemic, people leaving Northern Virginia and DC and New York and coming to the area, the Chesterfield is a representation of that. And we're going to be talking to Ghazla Hashmi, state senator, uh, from Chesterfield, do you look at it as uh, as a bellwether for anything, or are there other parts of the state that particularly intrigue you that are shifting? Chesterfield and, and Henrico are absolutely um, two very important counties to look at in Virginia. If you look at population shifts and you look at political shifts across the state, Chesterfield and Henrico are two very large suburban areas where we've seen enormous shifts in recent years. So those are absolutely important places where the GOP has to make up ground and if not win back Chesterfield, at least gain back some points. So that is where we've lost um, a lot of votes and where um, a lot of population growth and buildup has happened at the same time and where Glenn Youngkin and our other statewide candidates are, go are going to be 
spending a lot of time. At the same time, we have really strong candidates running for the Virginia House of Delegates. And so mm. everybody working together, um, you know, rising tide lifts all ships, that I think working together with strong candidates, we have 99 candidates, uh, Republicans running in 99 districts across the state. And so there's a lot of excitement and a lot of strong candidates there. And so for the first time, I think there's a lot of, in a long time, there's a ton of enthusiasm on the Republican side. Um, and so if we can make up ground in Henrico and we can make up ground in Chesterfield in particular, that's absolutely beneficial to candidates like Glenn Youngkin and Jason Mears and Winsome Sears and the three, all the other candidates running. Taylor Keeney, what should I be asking you? What's front and center? What do you think is not getting enough attention uh, in this in this year? Again, we get a tremendous amount of attention as a as a kind of an idiosyncratic year election coming off of the really contentious twenty twenty election and everything that led up to January sixth and and uh, you know the, the the grievance that you're still hearing out there that, that it was a stolen election. There there's still significant hard feelings over what happened last fall. You know, I think what is going to be really interesting to watch over the next couple of months as now we've got Terry McAuliffe has officially gotten the nomination for governor um, on the Democratic side. And so, you know, it's off to the races for our statewide candidates is I think what's going to be really important to look at is what are the issues that voters are paying the most attention to now that we're in that general election phase of the campaigns and how important are things like education and our schools being closed for the last 15 months going to be to voters when they walk in to vote in November? How important um, is public safety going to be? I mean, those are the two big issues. When you talk about suburban voters, it's often education and public safety that are most important to suburban voters. And I think the GOP has a really strong argument to make that Democrats completely abandoned suburban women in particular on those two issues. So how much do those impact what voters do come November and how top of mind are those two issues heading into election day? So I think, you know, we've gotten through the primary phase of the campaigns, and I think it's going to be really interesting now to see where the focus shifts in terms of policy and what the two candidates focus on, and ultimately which party can really break through and bring voters back to voting for them um, based on issues that resonate the most with suburban voters when you're talking about voters in Northern Virginia and Fairfax and Loudoun County and voters in Central Virginia and Chesterfield and Henrico. And I have to ask you on that, where where do the suburbs and exurbs begin? I mean, at, at some point, could Richmond, for example, be considered a suburb of D.C.? Is that a stretch? Especially, I could tell you anecdotally, amid the pandemic, there are a lot of people that are commuting and increasingly, you know, it's a psychographic term. I'm a, I'm a, I live in the DC exurbs, but I in fact live in Ashland County or, <laughs> or Northern yeah. Richmond and, and people who, you know, what, what determines uh, the suburbs of these, these metropolis? Absolutely. Well, and you look at a county like Chesterfield, um, we have friends who have new neighbors, a lot of new neighbors who have moved from New York and New Jersey who moved down to Virginia for lower taxes and lower cost of living during the pandemic when they could work remotely. So um, in terms of where the suburbs end and um, exurbs begin, I think, you know, Henrico and Chesterfield are growing, Chesterfield in particular, a lot of um, developments happening there. So that's a county that's continuing to grow. Um, but I think Virginia prides itself in the urban crescent of Northern Virginia, Central Virginia, and Hampton roads. And so um, those are going to be your three main population centers to look at during this election cycle. Um, and then in terms of where they begin and end, I think, you know, you just, you've got to look at where the growth is going on and that's where you're going to see shifts in our electorate. Taylor Keeney, uh, JOP strategist, director of strategic communications and advocacy at Hunt and Andrews Kurth. You're always welcome to come back on this show. It was a joy. 
Thanks. Thanks for having me, Robin. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, joining us is State Senator Ghazala Hashmi. She's a Democrat who represents Virginia's 10th district in 2019. She was the first Democrat elected in a long time. As I read the New York Times headline, she doubted her place in America. Now she's Virginia's first Muslim state senator. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm I'm doing well. It's been a busy year and a, already a busy start to the summer, but everything is going well. You know, I've always been told that District 10, which covers all of Powhatan County, uh, part of Chesterfield and part of the city of Richmond, is kind of an indicator species, not just for the state of Virginia overall, which is kind of tilted purple and blue, but for much of the, the where the South kind of bleeds into the mid-Atlantic. Uh, you've seen a disproportionate amount of attention kind of on on presidential election night with uh, Steve Kordaki and MSNBC and, and, and roughly your district. What do you think about that? I think it's absolutely right. My district is uh, just a, a wonderful and unique district. We've got uh, uh, the the city of Richmond as well as Chesterfield County and then Powhatan. And so it really gives the full spectrum of all of Virginia. We've got the urban, the suburban and the rural. And I think uh, the complexity of the district highlights really the complexity of the entire state. Uh, we have the full spectrum of a variety of individuals living here and the issues and the challenges, whether it's our agricultural communities or our uh, folks in the, in the city, the issues around our schools, all of these are very much reflective of what the rest of the uh, state is facing. Now, uh, Senator Hashmi, you were formerly director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Reynolds Community College in Richmond. This was your first your first crack at public office, and you won in 2019 against Glenn Sturtevant, who repeatedly, I think, beat a Democrat. I think it was uh, Mr. Gecker previously. And as far back as I can look, and I think it was redistricted in 2011, it's just been a consistently Republican district. What changed in 2019? Um, so I think a lot has changed in Central Virginia, and a good part of that has to do with uh, the growth uh, within uh, Richmond City. We have a lot of young professionals who find the city to be a vibrant and engaging community to live in and to raise families in, and they are very, very socially conscious as well as politically engaged. But we've also seen a pretty dramatic shift in Chesterfield County as well in terms of political engagement uh, and, and the activism of uh, many different groups inside of Chesterfield. So you might be familiar with a group called the Liberal Women of Chesterfield County. And uh, this was a, a group of uh, women, largely, who uh, were simply outraged by the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And they knew that the kind of radical right-wing politics that was uh, represented by the Trump administration wasn't reflective of the kind of Virginia that they wanted to to see grow and flourish. And so that activism by a group of women uh, continued to expand, and they brought about um, uh, pretty significant changes uh, working in coalition and collaboration with the other uh, many other groups, such as our environmental groups, our folks advocating for education changes, and individuals who are fighting for racial and social equity. That combination of factors uh, really led to uh, political 
uh, transformation inside of Chesterfield. So we saw part of that movement in, in 2018, the election of Abigail Spanberger uh, in this particular district. We also saw uh, many, many more women candidates uh, emerge and run. And then in 2020, this past presidential election, Chesterfield County went blue. Uh, it, it voted for Joe Biden. Now, first time for the county to be uh, voting Democratic in a presidential election. So these were some very significant changes that uh, we have been seeing uh, in Central Virginia over the course of the last uh, six, seven years. And, and they've had an impact on who is getting elected into office. Indeed, a Democrat hasn't carried Chesterfield County, which is located just south of Richmond, since Harry Truman in 1948. Uh, Something has definitely changed. When I look at its statewide history, I mean, it was reliably a red state nationally. Uh, If you go back to, uh, you know, as recently as George W. Bush in 2004 and 2000, uh, it it never went for Clinton, I believe, in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last time I think it went for the Democrat was in 1964. Uh, and something something broke the spell in 2008, and Obama took it, and it has been uh, nationally Democratic since. It has consistently had Democratic mm-hmm. uh, U.S. senators. It has had Governor Bob McDonald as a Republican in the governor's mansion. Uh, but what was the tipping point to your mind? Is it is it a lot of is it is it one the growth of Northern Virginia? If you step back and think statewide and nationally, and two. Especially in the past year, I noticed anecdotally a lot of people have been moving to Central Virginia from from D.C. and New York now that working from home seems to be less exotic than it used to. Yes, I think you're right that uh, Northern Virginia has certainly led uh, the Commonwealth in in shifting the the political um, perspectives of of the state. But but I don't think it's Northern Virginia alone. You know, one th- somebody said something to me very very interesting right after I was elected in 2019. This gentleman said, we certainly expected someone like you to emerge, run, and win in Northern Virginia. But the fact that uh, you've done it in Central Virginia is is uh, so indicative of the way that the entire Commonwealth is, is changing. And I think his statement was quite right. Um, so while Northern Virginia has been a leader in this uh, shift uh, in, in the political outlook, as well as perspectives, uh, we are seeing similar changes across the state and and even right here in in central Virginia which has been as you said reliably conservative now is really uh, part of the of the new wave that we see uh, we have very strong democratic leadership in this area and I think we're going to see that continue to grow and expand uh, even in 2021 and certainly in the following elections Senator Hashmi, uh, could you please comment on, on your your constituents at the very least and, and statewide in Virginia? Are GOP voters, uh, in your opinion, still enthralled to President Trump? Is he the leader of the GOP, for better or for worse, going into you know this Virginia year election, the midterm elections next year and into 2024? You know, I think there is a small segment of uh, Republican voters who remain committed to the Trump agenda. But uh, so many of my colleagues and friends that I know who are traditionally Republican were simply appalled by the the kind of uh, extremist policies and the 
I will have to say, carelessness by which uh, the Trump administration approached governance in general. And many of these folks, uh, and I talk to them frequently, they're dear friends of mine, uh, many of these folks want to see a uh, return to the traditional Republican values, which was, uh, you know, historically focused on economic responsibility, responsibility for uh, good social governance as well. And and so those are the concerns that most of the Republicans that I speak to are focused on. And and so I think we're going to see a rejection of far extreme policies on the conservative side. Uh, we certainly are seeing a movement towards more willingness to engage in those values that unite us bipartisan support around issues on education, uh, around our businesses, making sure our small businesses have support and thrive, support for our farming families. All of these are bipartisan concerns, and we have ample opportunities to continue to find ways to collaborate and work together and build that shared vision. So I see us working well together in Virginia, and I see us rejecting wholeheartedly the, the Trump agenda. Senator Hashmi, I'm quoting from your website, and, and Ghazala Hashmi is an American name. Uh, you write, I realized I had a choice. I could remain unheard, unseen, and unrepresented, or I could speak out, be visible, and dare to claim for myself and other marginalized communities the right to full participation in our democracy. Again, it goes back to your own observation that somebody expected that you, you could have surfaced and been successful in Northern Virginia, which is a very different state in many respects, but you pulled this off in central Virginia. Again, swaths of Powhatan, Chesterfield, the city of Richmond. You have farmer constituents with pickup trucks and Trump stickers. And uh, I, I, I don't imagine some of these constituents have ever met a Muslim American woman. <laughs> uh, you were were you kind of fearless going into that because again this wasn't done incrementally like you had a a, a very white centrist you know uh, Democrat in name only senator being elected this overnight went from Lynn Sturdivant to Ghazala Hashmi. <laughs> um. I was not intimidated by the process because, you know, I, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Southeast Georgia and the farming community that is part of uh, Chesterfield and Powhatan was the community that I knew best. Uh, these were my classmates, my friends, and I feel like I had uh, such strong roots and connections to different communities, not just in Georgia, but here in central Virginia. My family, we, my husband and I moved here in 1991. So for 30 years, we have a wide network of friends and relationships. And, and for me, I've never really assessed people along their political lines, but along who they are as individuals, what visions they have, what values that they can share. And it's on that basis that I build my uh, connections and friendships. And so uh, I have really loved every aspect of this shift that I've made in, in my professional and personal life. And I've loved it primarily because it's given me a chance to meet uh, so many different people, engage with a lot of different communities, and really work to resolve some of the issues and concerns that uh, a lot of my constituents are facing. And so it's, it's meaningful work, and it's work that I, I truly love doing. 
Uh, is there anything you can extrapolate from your district and kind of what is is going to happen to maybe other parts of Virginia that have never known this kind of shift and maybe move out to places like North Carolina, which are mm-hmm. still red, but decreasingly so. I mean, certain things have happened. I'm sure you watch Georgia very closely. After all, you graduated from Georgia Southern University in Emory, and that had uh, a, quite a contentious shift uh, with the U.S. Senate seats and with it shifting nationally for Biden in the 2020 election. Exactly. Yeah. So I think we're seeing this, uh, you know, as more uh, voters find uh, opportunities to engage and to assert their voices, then we see this shift towards uh, the kind of uh, democratic principles that many of us share. And, and I think we're going to see that continue. One, one interesting uh, area that I think for us in Virginia to focus on is Southwest Virginia and what's happening there. Um, there are communities there that feel that they've been left behind, um, that they don't get heard in Richmond or in Washington. And, and I sure hope we're able to bring some new perspectives and opportunities there. So with our focus on expanding broadband access uh, as a top priority for us in the state, I hope that we are going to be able to build the infrastructure around a really solid uh, economy based on small businesses, uh, bring some manufacturing and uh, high-tech jobs to that area, making sure we're using our higher education institutions that are there to uh, develop uh, workforce and uh, professional career opportunities for the communities that live there. I'm really optimistic uh, about what we can do in, in that region. And as you said, it's going to have an impact regionally to Tennessee, to North Carolina. And there's just such potential and, and wonderful people there that uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to working with. You know, I think few people realize this, but your district has a thriving little Korea town. I go there for Korean barbecue, and it competes <laughs> with some of the best stuff I had on 32nd Street when I lived in Manhattan. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. back, back uh, near the University of Richmond, for example, there's a Vietnamese community. They call it Hanoi on Horse Pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just uh, you know, west of that is a Bosniak community. There's a, there's a Cambodian community here. It's really... I think not what uh, nationally people would imagine Richmond and Central Virginia would have been composed of. I'm so glad you mentioned all of those. Uh, the best food in Richmond is, is really just uh, all of the diverse uh, communities that we have. And uh, we have, my husband and I have been frequenting the Horsepen area for close to 30 years. Uh, a lot of good foe there. <laughs> so I'm glad well, you I've been mentioned hitting, it. I've been hitting Lebanese, bake, Lebanese bakery recently, just to give you a little in. Uh, Next okay. door to one of the Vietnamese restaurants, these guys <laughs> took over a derelict uh, Little Caesars, and it makes the best falafel and tabbouleh in Richmond. So highly recommended. I'm not, I'm not getting sponsored by them, but you know through social media that I'm quite a foodie. Uh, thank you so much, Ghazala Hashmi, Senator, Democrat, the 10th District of uh, Virginia. Um, you are always welcome back to come on the show. Well, thank you, Robin. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. A warm hello to our radio listeners up in Arlington, Virginia, much of Washington, D.C., Ventura, California, and Buncombe County, North Carolina. Please do message me if you too want us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. 
Thank you for listening and back with you next week.